If there is one thing the internet has accomplished in its 20 or so years of existence, it's that it's proved our grandparents right more times than we care to admit. Um, Namely, in the area of, I don't know if your grandparents were like mine, or maybe your parents, or maybe you're like this, and they always insisted you never ask someone who they're voting for, right? Like, it is never a topic of conversation. And then the internet came around, and the rule became you always insist on telling everyone who you're voting for, right? And you insist that they are absolutely 100% wrong and responsible for the demise of the country and ruining this whole world, and it's all their fault that the whole thing's going to fall apart all because of who they voted for, right? Nope, just me? Cool. So this happens, right? Like, like you've noticed this, that, that tensions seem to be on the rise, and there seems to be always this buildup amongst people. And what, what, what continues to happen is people get more and more mad about each other, and instead of talking and working things out, the answer is continually just to entrench deeper and deeper and say, I am right and you are wrong, Right? And like the further you dig and the stronger you hold to what you're sure is right and, it's, and what you're sure is the only way, the, the more you drive other people away. Has anybody else noticed that this is happening? And there's, there's zero room for this fancy word called nuance where you have a discussion with someone and say, I think we might disagree on this issue, but I think we can both agree that the goal here is, is the common good. And what makes it even worse, and this is going to make me sound like I'm like 75 years old or something really old, but what makes it even worse is that the internet has so changed human interaction that we will type words to someone that we would never in a million years say to their face. And so we've gotten so much braver by not having to use these words to their face. And so these tensions continue to rise and this, and this angst and this turmoil just keeps building up in all of us. And sometimes it's over things like presidential elections or local elections and politics, but it continues over into like weird things like sports and pizza places. And like everyone just keeps arguing more and more and more because it just seems to be the norm. Have you ever stopped and thought, why is this happening? Why? Why are we getting so angry? And you, can, you could say it's, it's the news media's fault because this, this channel has a spin this way and this channel's biased that way and, and they're the ones that incite it. And that's actually true because it's their job for you to watch it so you want to watch it. They, so they make it so you want to watch it and they tell you all these things that make you mad and make you talk about it. You're falling into their trap for the record. And like it's this way that it goes for you. But the, the real problem here is it's not a news issue. It's not a political agenda issue. The real problem here is a heart issue. And and as we've been together now for a couple of weeks talking about the head and the heart, and we're walking through the book of James, and one of the things that James talks about is the issue that most believers are having getting along with one another. So I want you to, to, to catch this with me. That 2,000 years ago, before the internet, before news media, before television, there were people who had difficulty getting along with each other. So this isn't necessarily a new thing. This is something that's been happening for a long time. And so what James does is James says, we're going to get to the heart of this matter. And he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It is, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, 
so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And here in the, in the English version, the, the writers chose to use the words passions, but most scholars would argue you could also interchange the word pleasure. So what James is saying here is that the reason you're arguing, the reason you're having trouble getting along with anyone else, the reason you're struggling is because your number one concern is what you want. And he said, the reason you can't get along with anyone else is that everyone's trying to win this race to the top. The reason you can't get along with anyone else is because your only concern is you and yours and me and mine. And James is saying, this is the problem. The problem is you can't just look out for number one or everyone's going to kill everyone else. If you were here last week, we talked about a little bit about this, and we talked about wisdom, and we said the most important question isn't what's best for me. We said the most important question is what's best for all of humanity. The most important question isn't how can I get what I want. The most important question we can ask, the wisest decision we can make is what's best for the kingdom of God. All summer, we've been talking about how as a church, our goal is to love Jesus and love like Jesus. And we've been talking about what it looks like for us to sacrificially lay our lives down. And time and time again, I'm telling you that when we talk about love, what we're talking about is not doing what's best for us, but doing what's best for someone else. If I were to tell you guys that I love you with all of my heart, you'd be pleased, right? I hope, maybe, like... Maybe that weirds you out. That's fine, too. But here, here's what's really interesting. Um, in, in 2016, in the United States of America, the heart is what sociologists call the seat of emotion. And what that means is that when we talk about emotions, when we talk about feelings, we typically refer to our heart, right? And it's okay. That's normal. But over time, there have been different body parts that represent different emotions for different cultures. There are some cultures that say, I love you with all of my kidney, or, or they say, I, I love you with all of my guts, or whatever it looks like for different cultures at different times. Uh, you know, some of you have probably been accused of thinking with the wrong body part. This is kind of what we're thinking about right here. And so, so what happens is, for us, the seat of the emotions is, is the heart. And so when we talk about our emotions, we blame our heart. But in the Old Testament, and this is my favorite fact about the Bible, maybe I take that back. This is my favorite funny fact about the Bible. But in the Old Testament and in ancient times before Jesus, do you know what for some cultures the seat of emotion was? This is my favorite tidbit that I'll ever tell you, and I can't even stop. The, the seat of emotion in the Middle East in the Old Testament cultures, like two, 3,000 B.C., was the bowels. So can you imagine living in two or 3,000 B.C., buying a bowel-shaped heart? I ruined it, see? Buying a bow-shaped box of chocolates for your lover on Valentine's Day. Like, can you imagine Celine Dion singing, my heart will go on, but instead it's near, far, wherever you are, um, my bowels will go on, right? <laughs> like, you've seen the Rocky movies, and you know that one of the theme songs of the Rocky movies is Hearts on Fire. <laughs> I can't even. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> but so, like, it really gives a whole new meaning to that song, so anyway, so when we're talking about emotions and we're talking about feelings, when we start talking about, about the, what happens, right? And for us, so often, our decision-making comes from our feelings, right? I feel like this is what I'm going to do that's best for me. I think this is what I'm going to do that's best for me. 
But if you were here last week, you know that we started talking about that wisdom is not just making the emotional choice. Wisdom is making the choice that's best for all of humanity. And some of you can think back on some decisions that you made with your heart that you regret, can't you? Maybe it was the decision you made under those wonderful romantic lights of the dashboard in the parking lot. Maybe it was the decision you made even though everyone else told you it was bad and you moved across the country and you found yourself hat in hand coming home. Maybe it was the decision you made to go there to do that. Maybe it was the decision you made to walk away from what you thought you knew. For all of us, there's a decision, there's a time, there's multiple places. If I listed mine for you, we'd be here all day, of decisions that we've made that we thought were a heart thing that it turns out ended up leading to destruction and death. And we thought what we were doing was we were doing the right thing, but it turns out all that we were doing was doing the emotional thing. You see, here's, here's, the, here's the thing about life is that when we're following Jesus, there comes a point when our number one priority can no longer be ourselves. And this is a difficult thing to say. It's probably a difficult thing to hear. Because the norm, because society, because culture says the most important thing is what? Make yourself happy, do what you want, follow your heart, take care of yourself, all of those things. But what Jesus is saying is he's pushing back on that back then and he's pushing back on that now and he's saying it is far more important that you are worried about other people. And so if you hear nothing else today, hear this when it comes to your emotions. My heart, my life has to be all about other people putting their needs in front of my own. And I'm telling you, I don't want to say that any more than you want to hear it. I don't want to say that my life has to be all about other people. I want my life to be about me. I want my needs to be the ones that are met. I want my needs to be the ones that matter. But what Jesus tells us time and time again, and what James is telling us here in chapter 4, is that what's most important What's most important is other people. I love the way that James puts this in a different version. We typically read from the English Standard Version, but he wrote this. the writers of the Message Translation put this perfectly, and they said this. They said, what do, you think all of these, what do you think all of these appalling wars and quarrels are coming from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way, and you fight for it deep inside yourselves, He says, you lust for what you don't have and you're willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and you will risk violence just to get your hands on it. And so what is it that James is saying here? He's saying your heart leads you to decisions. Your emotions lead you to decisions time and time and time again that will only ultimately lead to pain. If I, if I were to take a quick survey of this entire room, and I would say, name for me the two biggest problems in the world today, I would get a bevy of answers, but they'd all probably fall in the same category of a few things. But the bottom line about all of those answers is that each and every one of them, if we were to trace it back to its origins, each and every problem that exists, each and every struggle that happens in this world happens because it starts with a heart issue. 
The foundation and the root of the problem that exists is the problem that exists happens because someone's heart is focused on themselves rather than focused on anything else. One of the most fascinating things when you study the life of Jesus is is the crowd that follows. He starts with 12 and builds the crowd up to the point where there's thousands and thousands and thousands, up to five to 10,000 people, depending on what part you read and who you ask. And then all of a sudden, as things get more serious, people start walking away again. And it dwindles back down to the original 12. And part of the reason that happens is because Jesus continually tells people, you follow me, I'll give you the life of promise. You follow me, you'll get to heaven. You'll follow me, all of these good things will happen. But he also says, if you follow me, your life has to be dedicated to other people. He also says that if you follow me, you have to give up your own self, give up your own desires, and you have to start serving others. And so people hear good life, people hear new kingdom, people hear the promises Jesus is making, they're saying, cool, I'm in. But then Jesus says the good life is when you're not worried about yourself anymore. But then Jesus says the new promise is when you don't have to worry about your own needs and you worry about other people. You see, in a time when most of us would rather worry about ourselves, Jesus makes it clear that following Jesus makes my life all about other people. My life always is about other people. I was laughing this week, we're working on um, the next couple of sermon series that start starting Labor Day, or starting after Labor Day, and the next sermon series we're doing is, is a sermon series on marriage that we think is appropriately titled, Fight the Story of Your Marriage. Nope, I thought it was funny, it's cool. Um, but the, for the three weeks that we're talking about fight, and we're talking about marriage, do you know the main problem with your marriages right now? I can tell you, even if I don't know anything about your marriage, the main problem with your marriage, because it's the main problem with my marriage, is that... Everyone involved, both sides, in my side mainly, it's just one particular side, but are always more worried about what they want, are always more worried about what they can get. The main problem with marriage is selfishness. And so for the three weeks that we're talking about fighting in marriage and fighting for your marriage, we're going to talk a lot about how the point of marriage is to serve others and to serve your spouse. And then after fight, we're going to spend a lot of time all the way up until the election cycle talking about this series that I'm beyond excited for called Apolitical Jesus. And I'm going to go ahead and burst your bubble. I'm not going to tell you who Jesus would vote for. But I am going to talk to you a lot about how Jesus looks a lot different than a political leader you probably think he does. And we're going to talk all about what Jesus says over and over again in the greatest stump speech in the world in the Sermon on the Mount about how your life revolves around others. What's most interesting to me is that most of us probably would admit that one of the main reasons we follow Jesus, if not the only reason we follow Jesus, if we follow Jesus, is because we're interested in the promise of heaven. Maybe you started coming because there was a girl you wanted to date. Maybe you started coming because you thought you had to. But for most of us, the big, the big kicker in this Christianity thing, in this following Jesus thing, is, is the promise of heaven. And so it seems counterintuitive then for all of us to think, I started this for me, but I don't get to do anything for me. 
Because see, if you're like me, reflexively, if you hear the end of verse 2 when James says, you do not have because you do not ask, and you're like, oh, that's why there's only three bathrooms in my house, because I haven't asked Jesus for the fourth one yet. That's why my car is only a 2014 and not a 2016, because I haven't asked Jesus for the right brand, right? But here's what James says in verse 3. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your pleasures. And he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know what James is saying here? As he's saying, if you're trying to use God to get what you want, if you're trying to take advantage of God to make your life better, then what you're doing is you're, you're cheating on God. Imagine with me that you're married, if you're not, and, and if you are. Imagine with me that your spouse goes out of town for business this week. And the first night they're there, you get a call, and the spouse says, Hey, I just wanted to tell you, uh, at dinner tonight I met someone and we were talking, and we had some things in common, and we made each other laugh, and things were good, and they really listened, and they ended up coming back to my room, and I, I don't know what really happened. Things got a little amorous. Things went a little too fast, but I kicked them out before too long, and not too much happened. You shouldn't be too worried about it. I was like 75% faithful to you. You're not okay with that, right? Because 75% faithful is 100% cheating. And this is, this is what God is trying to tell. This is what James is trying to impart to us here. Is he's saying, if you're mostly following Jesus, but you've got to take care of your own things first. If you're mostly figuring this Jesus thing out, but you really got to make sure you get vengeance on that guy. If you're the kind of person who's saying, Jesus, I want to score the touchdown this week. Please let me score the touchdown. I promise I'll point to the sky afterwards. If you're the kind of person who's saying, Jesus, I promise I'll start giving to the church once I get a raise. I'll be more generous once I get two more promotions. Then what you're doing is, is you're trying to say, Jesus, I want this to be all about me. But as a, as a community of people who are choosing to love like Jesus, we have to find ourselves living differently. And so here's one of the ways that we're going to start living differently is each week, every Monday, we send an email out to the whole church. If you're not getting that, make sure you see me. But each week when we send out our Monday email, we're going to give you a really simple challenge for how you can love your community this week, for how you can love someone like Jesus. And there are so many ways that you can do this without our prompting. There are so many people and names and faces that are coming to your mind of the kind of person you need to love, but we're going to make sure that as a community, that only thing we do is not just gather in here for an hour and sit on our duffs and talk about what good people we are, but we're actually going to do something about it. And so every week, we're going to come up with a challenge. And this week, I'll tell you in advance, the challenge is you're going to buy somebody else lunch this week or dinner or breakfast, whether it's the person behind you at the drive-thru or a table across the restaurant that you don't even know. And it's going to be a small act of sacrifice that for some of you is going to cost a little more than you're prepared to do. But for some of you, it's going to be small. And you're not going to tell them why. You're not going to answer any questions. You're going to do it as anonymously as possible. And I know that sounds almost trivial. But who's the only person that doesn't benefit? It's you. 
Because if you're not allowed to take credit, if you're not allowed to tell anybody about it, if you're not allowed to post about it on social media, if you're not allowed to brag about it, the only person who doesn't benefit is you. And so it's genuinely loving someone, it's genuinely caring for someone without any chance of return. The week after that, we're going to come up, we have a few challenges that we're coming up with for how you're going to love your kid's teacher. And if you're a teacher, for how you're going to love your students. And again, it has nothing to do with getting your students to like you better. It has nothing to do with the teacher giving you better grades, but it's just a simple matter of you coming to your teacher and saying, I love Jesus, and because I love him, I'm going to love you like he loves me. Because if we truly want to be the kind of church that makes an impact, if we truly want to be the kind of church that makes a difference, the number one thing we have to stop doing is stop caring about ourselves. It's why on Labor Day weekend, we're a part of a block party that's happening downtown where our name will be nowhere on any banner or anything. And the goal of the block party downtown is for all of the churches in the area to come together and to serve each other and to help make sure that that racial tensions in our neighborhood don't happen like they have other places and to help make sure that the police and the first responders of our community know as well as every other age group and, and racial group in our community know that there are a group of people who love them and are thankful for them. part of the reason that we do what we do. We say it all the time that we will be a church that sees thousands of people of all ages, races, and socioeconomic classes raised from death to life in Christ. And I'm telling you, we will not see thousands of people raised from death to life in Christ if our only concern is what we can get, if our only concern is what I can do, if our only concern is what that looks like for me. And so we're just going to make sure that we love like crazy. And we're going to sacrifice, and it's going to cost. And so when you're thinking about that person that you're, you're going to love like Jesus this week, I anticipate in my mind that they probably look a little bit like you. And they probably act a little bit like you, and they probably think a little bit like you. But I want to read this with you, and I want to share with you the easiest way to love like Jesus. Do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In this, what might be one of the most misquoted verses in all of the Bible, James gives a solid example of the most important thing about loving. You see, what what James isn't saying here is let everyone you know get away with whatever sin they want. What James isn't saying here is don't ever bother talking to your friend or your brother or your sister about the problems that they're having. What James isn't saying here is don't judge, man. What James is saying is that in spite of your differences, in spite of your different beliefs, in spite of your different backgrounds, in spite of your different pains and sorrows and struggles, love them anyway. And this is not more perfectly embodied in a story than the story Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells the story of a man. So we assume this man that Jesus is telling the story about is an Israelite man. He's from Israel. He's a Jewish guy. And he's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. And while he's walking on this dangerous road, a band of thieves come out and they rob him. They take him for everything he's worth. They beat him up. They leave him bloodied there on the street and they run away. 
So this man is dying and on a dangerous road that's already known for being a dangerous place. And the first person who walks by this man is called a priest. Now, according to the religious law of the day, the priest wasn't allowed to touch a dead body. So for the priest to touch this man who may very well be laying there dead, he would probably be breaking the rules. And he'd probably have to go through a lot of pain and a lot of, a lot of struggle to, after he had touched the body to become clean again to be able to perform his duties. But the reality of this is, is this man is like you and me. And he sees someone who's hurting and he sees someone in need. And he thinks, I could help them, but I just... I just got my nails done. I could help them, but what if someone saw me? I could help them, but I'm just not going to. And the priest tiptoes his way around the street down the other side. And the next person who comes is a Levite who's a religious leader. And the Levite walks up to him, and he knows the rules too. And the Levite is like you and me because the Levite might have thought, I could help him, but what if I break more of his bones and he sues me? I could help him, but what if this is a setup for another robbery? I could help him, but I saw that post on Facebook about how gangs are flashing their brights, and if they flash their brights at you, it means they're going to kill you. Like, I saw it, you know, it could happen to me. But then Jesus continues the story, and he says, but then a Samaritan walked by. And I kid you not, tensions between the Israelites and the Samaritans were so high that when he said Samaritans, there would have been Israelites listening to the story who would have spit on the ground. Ugh, blah, ugh, Samaritans, ugh, they're the worst. But Jesus says the Samaritan picks the man up, puts him on his donkey, bandages his wounds, and he takes him to an inn. And it's there at the end that he not only pays for the man's room, but he promises that when he comes back, he'll settle up whatever bill he runs up with the innkeeper. And this is what it means to love without judgment. This is what it means because emotionally, that Samaritan probably has heard the hate speech that came out of that man's mouth before. Emotionally, that Samaritan knows that the Israelites look down on the Samaritans. The Israelites don't think that much. So he could just kick him while he was down. He could say, this is what you get. This is yours. This is how you've earned it. I don't want to be around you anymore. But instead, the Samaritan has a much different response. His response isn't, what's in this for me? His response isn't, how can I get through this? His response is, how can I help this person who's hurting? And in spite of how all of Israel has wronged him for generations, in spite of how his family's been treated, in spite of the pain that he's been through, the Samaritan gently picks the man up, brushes the dirt off of him, bandages his wounds, and says, here, how can I show you love? How can I serve you? And why does the Samaritan do this? He does this because he's dedicated to loving like Jesus. He does this because he's dedicated to a God who saw you and me. He does this because he's dedicated to a God who said, in spite of what my children do, in spite of how they fight, in spite of how the people of this world can't get along with each other for five minutes, in spite of the wrongs that they've committed, in spite of all of that, he says, I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to send my son to love them, and to lay his life down for them.
And so every week we come together at this time and we remember that the reason that we love and that the reason that we're here is because of the very Jesus who said, in spite of what you've done, in spite of how you've hurt me, I'm going to choose to love you. And he chooses to love us by having come to this earth and laid his own life down for us. Because his most important thing on his mind wasn't what can I do for me, but the most important thought on Jesus' mind was how can I save them? How can I make sure that they're saved from their death and destruction? How can I make sure that the ultimate demise that they are due doesn't happen? And he didn't think, how is this going to hurt me? He thought, how can I save them? And so as the bread and as the cup come, I want to challenge you and I want to encourage you. Make sure to remember, this was for me, and now it's time for me to go and do this for someone else. 